Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Irish psychiatrist Ivor Brown once said, we are not living in a healthy society. We are living in a society that is systematically driving people mad. It is a society that needs to be fixed. So as we sit here in the first quarter of 2024, for me and I think many others, I feel like I'm living two lives. There's the world I live in that's the one I can see around me, but then there's the other one that I cannot see, but I can feel in my heart. And the gap between those two continues to get wider and wider as time goes on. And there's this sense of a need for reconciliation, or perhaps there's a day of reckoning coming. But either way, something's amiss and it just doesn't feel right. They don't align. To that, in that spirit, today's guest is a return friend. His name is John Waters. He's an Irish free thinker, talker, and activist. More importantly, he's a man that has a lot of courage. He's not afraid to speak his truth. And he's been one of those breaths of fresh air, very talented in being able to put words to how many of us are feeling. For anybody who's interested in his work, you can find him on his Substack page at johnwaters.substack.com. So it's my pleasure to welcome back to Upthinking Finance, John Waters coming to us from Dublin, Ireland. John, welcome back. Thank you very much, Emerson. Nice to be with you again. It's good to see you too. I tell you, it's like a breath of fresh air. (laughs) So You've been putting out a lot of content on your Substack site, which I mentioned in the interview, and you know, you obviously are traveling a lot. You speak a lot of truth, and I think the thing I've been really grateful for in your writing is you really just have a way to express what a lot of us are feeling, and not just at a surface level, but really kind of in the core. And so I want to get into that. I just thought it would be great to have you give an update on what's going on in Ireland, because I know I'm a native Californian, and I listen to some of the things you say, and it almost sounds like you're describing what's happened to California, you know, with unlimited immigration, you know, everything's getting more expensive. It's become like a military state over there. And it's just, it's sad, you know, it breaks your heart. So let's start there and see where we go. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, we did talk about Ireland quite a lot the last time, and I think back in October when we spoke, and the only thing that's changed now is it's got worse and it's escalated and it's quite mind-boggling and awe-inspiring to see the, the absolute villainy of the political class now as they push their agenda on the Irish people. Even though now the good news is that the Irish people are beginning to wake up in significant numbers as to there being a problem. They're not entirely sure what's going on, but they know there's something very strange happening when the government is actually attacking on a daily basis the Irish people invading their communities with hundreds of different aliens who have no business here and don't even know where they are, but are here because they've been induced with inducements like houses, front door keys, money, clothes, whatever. And while the Irish people are to be just told, you get to the back of the queue now, you've had your turn. This is now we're doing this. And that's that. And they actually say that in precisely those terms. They say, well, of course, we consult with communities. But consulting with communities doesn't mean that we listen to what they say. It just means that we tell them what's going to happen, pretty much. That's a really good point. So a short thing here where we live in a community in southern Utah is there's been, I don't know how else nicely to put it, it's good old boy politics. And it's people who all know each other over the years and have just done things and have never thought that anybody was paying attention. Now you got all these people like us who are moving in from other areas. And my wife got involved. And the short of it is, is they try to push through these 
tax increases and these things. And it's like you said, they sit and listen, but you know, nobody cares until you start yeah. pushing back. Yeah. Well, you see, that's a layer within this whole kind of whatever you would call this of that grift and graft layer where the politicians who have this aura of benevolence towards the world, we care, we really care. We don't care about you, but we care about everybody else. <laughs> but really, what you can see most clearly is that they're fixing up their mates, their party hacks who have large buildings in the village or in the vicinity, and they will get money to renovate it, and then they will get rent to put these people up in this for whatever time. So it's all a way of uh, greasing that wheel. But it's also another element, which is, again, you know, this is odd, because in a certain sense, this is something that we imported from America. But in fact, America may have imported from Ireland in the first place, which is kind of the Tammany Hall style of politics, where you basically... (laughs) Bring in your voters. When things aren't going well, you just change the election. Another thing that's going on, and it's a very formidable thing, because they literally are signing them up now almost from the moment they get off the plane as voters, as citizens, and putting their names down. And we have several electoral contests coming up this year. We have a European election, we have local elections, and we have two referendums on the same day, on May 8th of March, which to do are to do with the Constitution. Very fundamental questions in relation to changing the Constitution. These people are being offered votes willy-nilly, and even though they haven't the faintest clue what's going on or even what country they're in, most of them. I saw a tweet there last week from somebody who was invited into Linster House, which is the government, the House of Parliament, effectively. And uh, she tweeted that she had been in Leicester House. You know, she didn't even know that she was in actually not in England. Like, it's just laughable if it wasn't so appalling and so tragic and so unbelievable. You know, I mean, it's literally unbelievable that people who claim to be Irish, who are elected by Irish people, go into office and then attack the very fabric of their country and of the nation. This is not some kind of peripheral thing, a bit of an an irritation. This is a full frontal attack on the very existence of Ireland. And it's pretty much halfway successful right now as we speak. Well, okay, so you mentioned it seems like people are pushing back. And I feel like in the last couple of years, maybe people have started waking up. And I don't know whether it's just like you're describing, it's a bit of a punch in the face that people are feeling all of a sudden. Um, But even here, I mean, you probably saw that bill that the Senate passed about basically authorizing illegal immigration. Well, we're going to put it, I mean, as if the Constitution doesn't exist, that this is, I mean, it's like no one's hiding anything anymore. It's not like anybody's hiding it. It's right there in your face. Yeah, that's the thing, you know, that, that's one of the things that really strike you about this. When you've reached a certain age in this civilization, as it used to be, and you've kind of been used to a certain way of things happening and things being done and certain expectations of you and certain things you were entitled to expect as a citizen or as a human person in the society. And to see that it's all been then, it's all been basically scrapped now and all bets are off. And it's literally like everything has gone rogue. All the official institutions have become criminal and turned against the people. I just said that, Everson. I just said that, but I can't believe I said it. Do you know what I mean? Can I go back and just make sure that I said that correctly? The political institutions, the institutions have turned rogue and they have turned against the people. Yes, that is what's happening. Incredible as it is. I can't believe it. I'll be 69 this May and I've lived a long time in this country. I'm staggered that I'm finding myself saying such things at this stage of my life in my own country. You know, it's like things that you might encounter in far distant lands where democracy had never touched or where civilization was unheard of. You might somewhat condescendingly visit such a place and smile patronizingly at these kind of developments and say, well, I hope you get your act together soon. You know, I wish you all well. You know, 
But it's happening in my country. It's happening in your country, Emerson. And this is the amazing thing. I was recently thinking about, because I was writing about something that I've written about quite a lot before, going back 25 years. And that's a very a seminal book that appeared in about 20, nearly 30 years ago, written by Robert Bly, the great American poet who died there a couple of years back. And he wrote this book called, he wrote lots of books about this stuff, but he, he, about men and Iron John was a great, was a really a great book of his. But this one is called The Sibling Society. The idea of the title was based on an idea which was developed by a German psychoanalyst, psychiatrist called Alexander Michelich back in the, in, I think he published a book around the beginning of the 70s, or maybe somewhat before that. I'm not entirely sure about that. But he was very active in the resistance in the war, in World War II. And the sibling society is, was a kind of a prediction of where things were going sociologically in the West. That the prediction was that we were coming into an era in which there would be really no adults that there would be kind of half-adults pummeling the chests of their fathers and calling them fascists and constantly bickering, having lost all sense of vertical culture, which is the culture handed down through the ages, you know, that line of culture which comes to us from the past, and that there was nothing left, only what he called horizontal culture, which was what happens, the things that a particular generation of young people is interested in. That, in other words, certain kind of music or certain bands, certain fashions, sport, whatever it would be, and that culture will be reduced to this, and that this would be, that there would be no adults. And really, when I look at Ireland and I look at America, or indeed any country that I look at pretty much closely, like the one exception, which I was in last week, which is Hungary, although they've had a little trouble in the last week too. But I'll come back to that, Emerson. But it's absolutely staggering that there are no adults. You keep thinking all the time, oh, this has gone so crazy now that one day now, any day now, somebody's going to let a big roar and everybody's going to fall quiet. So, oh, yeah, okay, okay. Really. You know, it's like a classroom. You know, when the classroom goes crazy, when the teacher leaves for a few moments and then the headmaster comes passing by and raps on the door and everybody goes, shh. You think that's going to happen because you've been acclimatized to living in a civilization in which that would happen or some equivalent thereof. It's not happening. There are no adults. There's nobody over the people who are doing all this to say, stop. This is the staggering thing. These people are crazy. They're like adolescents with no brains, with no breeding, with no culture, with no knowledge of anything. And they're doing all this stuff, oblivious to the consequences. And there's nobody above them to say, hey, 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 please stop. Now, and that includes, you know, the media and all that, of course, we've gone through this, where once there was that overarching watchdog in the Sentry Post or whatever, overhead, watching and holding power to account and calling people out if they misbehaved. or That was their job in civilization. That's gone. That's gone. They just put out now what the authorities without authority tell them to put out. There we are. I don't know how they come up with it. I don't know how they figured it out because they didn't either go into this. It seemed to be just a tendency they saw. I suspect, although they didn't elaborate in this way that I can recall, that it was something to do with the idea that once you intrude a kind of a super parent, whether that be the state or popular culture or the internet, obviously, they wouldn't have seen that coming, really, then the existing authorities, the parents, even the government, lose authority in any meaningful sense. They don't any they just join the mob. And it's true of parents or it's true and it's like generally what happens is if parents have kids becoming problematic, they either join them or they kind of call them to heal and there's a few bad years of relationships. In governmental circumstances it's always the case. They always join them. They always join the mob 
which they, in this case they've actually cultivated, which is the woke mob. They've actually cultivated that because that's part of, the, I believe, a plan to impose all of this on our societies. It's chilling stuff, Emerson. I don't know what to say about it other than that. It's something that I can only achieve a limited degree of comprehension of. You wrote, you just covered a lot. I want to bring up a point I shared with you in email because it's been kind of eating at me. Now, you wrote in an essay, this was the raincoat. I should have this down, but... The empty raincoat, yes, the empty raincoat. Yeah, the empty raincoat, the first part, you wrote too. And this just nailed it for me. You said, and I'm quoting from your essay, it says, it seems to be happening, this is describing how we feel. It seems to be happening and yet could not possibly be happening. It is implausible and yet it seems to be real. People who understand what has happened know that this is utterly unprecedented in the whole of human history. People who are not oblivious to there being anything amiss at all. There are, therefore, in a sense, two different ways of describing reality. One is something like the end of the world as we have known it. The other is just another day at the office. And so I took that. Then I start looking back. You start looking at changes in society, like you mentioned about people giving up their authority, you know, and I remember this, that period of time, because I was, I think, in high school when the latchkey kid thing kind of came out where two parents started having to work. I've seen things where somebody tied it to 1971 when the U.S. went off the gold standard and the inflation took off and suddenly you had to have two incomes to be able to buy a house. And so then you get the kid coming home, getting into trouble, and pretty soon you start removing the parent. I mean, you could dig into all these holes. And so where I go with this is where do you anchor your own personal history? You talked about magazines. I remember you wrote about magazines and physical magazines that can kind of lock in a moment in time. But for me, I start wondering, it's unsettling because I'm thinking I was living my life all along, following sports teams, doing my thing, having a career blind. How long have I been blind all this? That's the part. Then you start to question, you know what I mean? I'm a guy who can go to extremes really easily, which is a problem. But then it's like, well, what is real? What is real? Like in my work, I've got feet in two sides of it. I've got this old system that we can clearly see is completely just disintegrating before our eyes. And then you've got this unknown, if the economy and the world's going to survive, it has to shift. So you're navigating where do you anchor yourself, John? That's my question. I did omit to describe a part of the thinking of both Mitchell and Bly in that context, because it was about the father, the loss of the father, going back to the Industrial Revolution, that the father who had been in the presence of his children on the farm, in the home, etc., all through history up to that point, left the home and went off to work outside and left the children. He said before that, there's some beautiful passage in it where Bly talks about the father fumbling incompetently with bolts and saws and hammers, etc. I'm misquoting slightly, but this is the idea. Leaving space, spaces between his competences for his children to grow and showing his children how to hold a nail or a calf. Those things, they were lost in our culture. And so we ended up in this sort of free fall, I think, culturally, because our fathers had gone. Even though they were not gone in the kind of official sense, they were gone temporarily every day. And we only saw them in, in the evenings and the weekends. And of course, that's now become exacerbated in the last 30 years with the McDonald's dad phenomenon and so on. When I was a journalist back in the Irish Times when it was a good newspaper 25 years ago, I used to write about all this stuff all the time about fathers, a little girl and and we had some difficulties and so on, the family law system and all that. And I wrote out of that experience and wrote about other people and what was going on. Of course, it attracted huge hostility. It's only now, Emerson, that I realised that this was somehow connected to what's happening now, that this was a deliberate undermining of family authority. The people responsible for this wanted to strengthen states and weaken families, and they certainly succeeded in that. So the surreal idea that what's happening cannot possibly 
be happening. That's a new thing because I remember actually some time ago, I was speaking to somebody who was a bit of a philosopher. He was talking about the, the difficulty of actually stating, making, right, saying a single sentence, which is actually definitively, objectively true. And he challenged me to come up with a sentence that w- could be said to be absolutely true. And the one I came up with actually was that sentence or the inverse. I said, what is happening cannot possibly not be happening. He kind of thought it was a trick answer. But now... We see the obverse of that, that what is happening cannot possibly be happening. It's so unreal. It's so like a trick. It's so like a game. Like I sometimes think, Emerson, that it is actually, that there is a gaslight, supreme gaslight exercise in that they are creating a kind of a hall of horrors or something, you know, where you are subjected to these horrors. And then one moment they will bring us into land and they'll say, ha ha, I got you. Had you going there for a while, didn't I? And they'll say, oh no, that was just a test for, you know, to test the strength of our democracy. And especially you guys who stood up, fair play, well done. Congratulations. Tomorrow we go back to normal. I say, oh gosh, that's great. You know, thanks very much, prime minister, president, whatever you are. All is forgiven. All is forgotten. That's really how I feel about it. Because there is no other explanation for how I mean, there's a whole stag, as, as you well know, Emerson, about the elites and the Illuminati and all this. I just don't know who's up there. I don't know. I suspect there is something like that, but I don't know what it is specifically. I can't do anything other than speculate about it. I call it the combine, this kind of vague force, which is a phase I got from Chief Bromden in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He used to talk about this, the combine. You know, they're out there, they're trying to do our heads, they're, they're tricking with our heads, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think there is, but... Well, I come down to each time, like I don't have to go there. I just have to say, we lived in a democracy under the rule of law. Where did it go? And can we have it back? And you who are charged with responsibility, you are responsible. You fix it now or you are a criminal. But okay, here is my struggle with all this. And you mentioned elections earlier. And I hear this from people that, well, what the Republicans get the Congress as if that's going to make a difference. I know we talked about this before, and I'm kind of jumping ahead on some stuff. I don't see that. I mean, to me, the system's clearly broken. Now, I don't know if you saw that recently some study came out that said, well, it appears with all the mail-in ballot fraud, Trump likely won the 2020 election. I mean, here, well, gee, that's great to know. I mean, look what's happened to the country the last four years. I had this discussion with some people last week when I was in California for work. And we're sitting talking about candidates and they were kind of supporting some Republican person that because they can get along better with both sides. They can work the system. And I'm thinking my comment was, what if the whole system needs to be completely trashed and start over again? You know what I mean? And that's the thing. There's an element of because I know what you're saying. It's like, yeah, okay, we'd all have a big laugh and go back to 2019 when everything was great, if it was great. Because like I said, I mean, what's real anymore? But I guess maybe that's the question. So, and you could speak to, you know, what you see over here, because we have our elections too. But where's the hope? And, and I'm not trying to be a downer, but where do you see the shift coming that actually gets us to a place where we can see some change? I mean, because clearly, I personally, people hate Donald Trump. People love Donald Trump. To me, the only reason why I support him is because he's not owned. The guy is not owned that I can see by anybody. But that doesn't mean that one person can come in and slay the dragon. I still think there's a role for everybody at some point. Yeah, well, I'm kind of with you in a sense on Trump. I mean, I do have questions and reservations about him, particularly in the last few years since the warp speed business. I still can't figure that one out, you know, and I've kind of parted over there and we see, will he come and clarify all that in due course? I hope so. 
because otherwise we're being misled, really. I don't know. You see, I remember actually that election in 2020 and watching it like everybody else in America. And I was here in Ireland and, you know, in the middle of the night, suddenly everything stops. And I think this can't happen. This can't happen. It's never happened before. It can't happen now. There will be an authority again. Somebody will come in, knock on the door and say, excuse me, you stand over there. You stand over there. Keep away from the voting machines. Keep away from the boxes. We're taking charge now. Didn't happen. Not alone that had happened, but the Supreme Court sat in its hands. And this was Trump's Supreme Court, pretty much the one that he was supposed to have rigged. It wasn't rigged. It still hasn't come, stepped up and mended that situation. And so America and the world has had four years of utter insanity. And again, I repeat, insanity is a completely inadequate word for any of this. We don't have words for this. So I cannot see one likes to think that somewhere there is a figure that are figures in the wings waiting to intervene in the world. We really pray and hope that that's the case. Good guys, white hats, cavalry, Clint Eastwood, where is he? Like, but I don't know. The evidence is scant. And even when it does appear, as in the case of Elon Musk, for example, there's always that ambivalence and that sort of ambiguity about him. He's making all the right noises, but he also wants the same things as the bad guys want. So where does that leave us? Are we going to embrace the good guy and then he does to us exactly what the bad guys wanted to do except with a smile on his face? I'm not happy with that. So I actually feel Emerson quite powerless in a way. And I mean that in the most existential sense. I don't mean I have no political power. Of course I don't. But I mean that I feel more and more in this situation physically affected by this. It's like something that gets into your bones and causes them to kind of vibrate in a strange way. And it's like that they've found some knob somewhere, you know, on a machine that can turn gravity up and make it bear down on you harder with every moment. Because you get up in the morning, and you kind of feel, Ugh. it's not just getting old. It's something else. You see, the only hope that I can see, that I can feel, not see, feel, Emerson, is this, that evil cannot win. Evil cannot win. And not just that as a kind of a sanctimonious kind of pious aspiration, but that the world won't work if evil wins. The world will not work for anybody, including the evildoers. This is something I don't think they've actually thought their way through. I'm torn sometimes between thinking these guys are evil geniuses and that they're actually completely stupid, because they don't seem to see the most obvious things. That if you destroy the world and all the people in it and just make, destroy their happiness and their lives and their health and everything else, then it won't be worth living in. For you either. These guys are going to have to have security details to protect them. And what happens? How can they trust their security details? I mean, money will lose its value. There will be no way of paying people because money, I think this is something they miss. I have a gold ring here, you know, and maybe I say to people, just to make this point, what is that ring worth, really, objectively, in a situation where the world falls apart? What's it worth? It's worth exactly that shape, zero. Zero. It's a chunk of metal. It's thrown away. Because that gold only has value because through history, gold was the means, the medium of exchange for human endeavor. And if you destroy human endeavor and destroy humanity, even the spirit of humanity, I mean that in a very precise sense. If you destroy the spirit of humanity, then your gold is worthless. Nothing has worth. Nothing. I would suggest somebody in that situation, if you have $5,000 trillion in banknotes, and there's a large pack of toilet paper beside it. Take the toilet paper. <laughs> you were on that interview with Ari Roberts. Am I pronouncing her name right? Abby Roberts. Abby. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. And um, on TNT Radio in Australia, that was like just last week. And you mentioned this. You said everybody understands that what's happening now is a fundamental attack on the human spirit, that we're in a spiritual war. 
And I think that's right. I think that's probably why there is, you mentioned it earlier, people are starting to push back. I think at some point when you talk about getting to the core, if you believe we're all spiritual beings, once you've touched that basic essence of who we are beyond the outsides and all the stuff that, like you said, is ultimately worthless, it's all dependent upon things around us. I think that's where this goes. And then I'm with you. I just think ultimately good has to win. I mean, I know it sounds a simple way of putting it. You guys were going to talk about Jesus, and then you went to a commercial break, and you never got back to that. I was so, I was like, oh, I want to hear what he has to say about the Savior and his role in all this, because I think it's important. This spiritual thing, spiritual is a word that's kind of been much abused, you know, and I mean, for a long number of times, when people have asked me about this kind of, I say, I'm religious, I'm not spiritual, wind them up a bit, but also to make a point, that the word had became somewhat debased with, you know, lots of kind of crazy since the 70s and so on. But the spirit of humanity, I mean, you think about the word spirit has different meanings, different kind of inflections. I mean, it means also like courage or strength, that as opposed to... So, and ultimately, I think actually it has to do with courage. Ultimately, in all the contexts, that is the manifestation of spirit, really. Because the antithesis of that is fear. And fear is the currency, if you like, now of the modern world. Fear is constant, like going back to the COVID thing, terrorizing of people with this extraordinary lie. And people are really broken down, I find, as a result of all of this stuff. Not just that, but the other stuff that they see that they don't understand. You see, they're subjected to double binds all the time, which is like something is happening that is clearly not something they want to happen. And it's been done to their village, has been invaded by strangers who seem to not to like them, to be hostile. And yet they feel obliged for some other impulse to approve of it. You know, it's a Christian thing to do, they're told by their bishops, or it's racist not to do it, they're told by their politicians. And they don't know where to go with that. And so that fear is really now, that's what they've done in all kinds of ways. They've spread enormous amounts of fear throughout human society. And I know a bit about fear because I came through a 12-step program, and this is the very heart of it, that fear is the greatest evil of all. It is worse than killing. It's worse than thieving. To be afraid is the most evil thing that you can suffer. The general hypothesis of the 12-step program, and that the antidote to that is to hand your life over to God, as you understand him, is the, the idea. But, I mean, eventually, if you go in as a Christian, you come out, or as a former Christian, you usually go in as an atheist or an agnostic, but you generally also come back out as what you were in the first place. And that's a very interesting thing. And I think, actually, when you wash this right down, Everson, you look at our societies, it's a kind of a cliche to say, oh, they lost their religion. But that's what Solzhenitsyn said repeatedly in his life when he was came back out of gulags and he went on his tour. And he used to say that he was born in, I think, 2018, 1918, the year after the revolution. And he said that when he was growing up, he said, he used to hear the old people always going on about it. He says, they would say, he said that man has forgotten about God. And that's why these terrible things are happening in our country. And he says, he just didn't know what they were talking about. I can totally identify with that. When he would say that, I say, yes, yes, yes. I think, oh yeah, we just stop. It's like a piety that has no Greek substance. He went on then and he said, well, he says, I've written a dozen books and I've read hundreds of other books, he says, and I've talked to literally thousands of my fellow countrymen about what happened for many years, he says. And after all that, he says, I cannot do better than say what those old people said. Man has forgotten about God. That's why these terrible things have happened. And ultimately, the reason for that, Emerson, I think, is can be actually almost, I would say, scientifically explained, as opposed to pietistically explained. In this culture we live in now, it's not possible to simply state it and have it accepted for, you know, at some level of meaning that is no longer there, really. And But the meaning is this, that 
The higher power is somebody that you can give your fear to. You can give your, you say, look, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with this. And you hand it up. That's in a sense what prayer is. I learned that in AA, that in the morning, prayer could be reduced to just one word. Get on your knees and say help. And then you could go about your life because the, the weight on your shoulders has been lifted off. But this is an important thing. The question then is, is it possible to apply this to a society, to a nation, to the world? I kind of think so. I think that idea that which it can be done in this way, that the most dangerous thing, the one of the first things I learned about this when I was going back into this again, having a very religious childhood, but in a very, as I say, pious way and not a rational way. I don't mean scientific rational, but reasonable. And there was a book in AA back in the early days, which was called by, written by a German guy, and it was called Not God, which is a very strange book to write a movement that is a spiritual movement. But the point was that when you go in, most people who go into AA, they're atheists, they're agnostics. They have huge difficulty in the beginning, lots of them rediscovering the idea of God. So that's why they use God as I understand him, constructions like that. But then eventually you get to the God thing. But they say before that, he said, what was most important, the most important emphasis was that you, I, am not God. I am not God, right? If there is anything in the modern world that is the condition that Solzhenitsyn was really hinting at, that is it. That is Soviet communism. That is national socialism. That is woke. That is all of these things. All of these ideologies. That is, I am God. I will say, I will decide, I will declare, I will punish. And that's what's happened in the world. That's the meaning, I think, of what fundamentally of what Solzhenitsyn was saying. And I think C.S. Lewis said that said this, when man abolishes God, he makes a mistake in thinking that, well, that means he will become God. But of course it doesn't. What it means is that a few will become God. A few will become God. And they will bear down upon the rest. And by the way, just before I finish this point, Everson, I have been reminding people recently that few is spelled F-E-W. And what does that spell backwards? <laughs> W-E-F. WF. Yeah, our friends in Davos. You know what? I knew there was something I connected to you, John. I'm a friend of Bill's too. I was going to ask your sobriety date if that's not too personal, but... The 30th of July, 1990. Okay, I'm 522.88 and I was 24 years old. And I love that because when I talk about not being anchored, you know, in the sense of life and things and church, we've talked about that before. I don't anchor myself in church because the reality of it is, is it's a part of the world too. SEC violations because of billions of hundreds of billions of dollars, shell corporations. I mean, that's not Christ. That has nothing to do with Jesus. But the God I found in AA, the higher power of your understanding, I've learned because gotten to know a lot of people who are indoctrinated into religion that they put these artificial limits on God because of doctrine, because of culture, because of tradition, whatever. And the God that I've experienced through this, it's been a clean canvas I could start with. And so the only thing that keeps me getting out of bed in the morning, John, that I it gives me sanity is that ex those experiences I've had where he's manifest himself to me in my life in personal ways that I know that there was just, I couldn't deny where it was coming. I mean, the fact that I'm sitting here having a conversation, I, mean, I know you can relate to that. That's a miracle in and of itself. And so that's what I've been able to fall back on. I don't know if you ever remember Est from the 1980s, Warner Earhart. There was this movement. It's like this self-awareness thing that was became a Hollywood fad, like Scientology. But the guy has some wisdom. And he said to him, he said, belief is a disease. What you experience is truth. And I've kind of gone back to that because the experiences I've had in my life, particularly with a higher power, really been... They don't always align with the doctrines of structure religion for me. 
And that's where I've been able to go back to. And, and it's kind of like I've gone full circle. You know, now I'm sitting at this place where that's the lens I'm using for my own personal discernment. Anyway. What I'm picking up from you is something, well, certainly what you trigger in me is a thought that goes something like, whereas I started as a Christian and in a certain sense came out as a Christian, in a certain sense now, these things are both literal and metaphorical for me. Because fundamentally, I am driven by the idea that without that power, there would be nothing. Without that power, there would be no me. By definition, my existence and the complexity of it and the beauty of it in lots of ways, the beauty of the world, all those qualities of the world. I ask myself, well, what kind of a world might exist if there was no higher power? Well, nothing for a start might be, would be one hypothesis. Nothing would exist, right? But at the very best, you would kind of expect what, that you would briefly awaken in a very, very, in a marsh of some kind, with your face just above the surface, and you would survive for maybe like 20 seconds before you would go under and disappear for all time again. Now, that's a clumsy kind of metaphor, but it's like, that's the level of expectation I would have of a world without God. It's an absurdity as well, but it makes the point that how can you possibly look at everything and decide that there is nothing? before and after this. Well, and that gets back to what you just said earlier, because you remove God from the equation and what are you left with? Everybody's fending for themselves. Like you said, the few take over, you become God in a sense. And honestly, I mean, I guess we could both admit, at least I'll speak for myself in my life, that's kind of how I was operating for a while. My needs, selfish. You Then you put it on a stage where we can hurt the people around us when we're living that way. But when you've got the people that are in stewardships over countries and over communities and all that, the damage is, I mean, it's diabolical. You know, it's like you said. Well, now it's very interesting, Emerson, because it just struck me now. Now, don't worry, I, this thought has never come to me before. I'm not in this way. But, you know, in the earlier stages of the not God existence thing, I mean, in the sense that we abolish gods in the Nietzschean sense, we were living in this culture where, you know, take it or leave it. If you wanted to be religious, mm, yeah, whatever. But in that era, it seemed that there was the evolution of a kind of a mentality in humanity in the West, say, that there was no such thing as sin, that you couldn't commit sin, right? But now we've reached another stage where there is a strong belief that you cannot commit crime. That's almost a defining quality of our governments now, a sense that you cannot commit crime. There's no judge. Of course, they bought all the judges, the actual judge, but there's no overweening, there's no overarching judgment. There's no judgment day. And that's like in their bones. This is our problem, really, to actually, how do we extricate ourselves from that? How do we find people of whom that's not true? Do they even exist anymore? They do, I sense, but they're very quiet. One of the things that the qualities I talk about all the time, I have two words for different gradations of it. One is mutism. And that's the kind of equality, which, or lack of an anti-quality, which has been imposed on the population of Ireland, I see it particularly, where people are afraid to speak about anything potentially next door to something controversial, right? It doesn't even have to be next to, contra- you know, it's something that might two doors down be controversial. I'm not going to go there. A more profound state of that is lockjaw, national lockjaw. Now, Ireland's been like that for about a decade. People are looking around them. You say something to them that's slightly edgy. They kind of look around. Oh, God, you see the watch, watch. Be careful, be careful. <laughs> and that is kind of the lack of courage, you see. Again, coming back to that fear, courage, dichotomy. dichotomy is just, which is, to me, that that's what God gives me, what the program gives me is courage in the day, in the moment, to believe in things that have no rational reality other than experience. 
that these things happen. I am blessed in certain moments because I asked. Providence, that the idea that I can say that word help and even say it hurriedly and unthinkingly and go out the door in a hurry. And yet, eight hours later, I realized that something has happened to take the burden from me. And then, of course, the other word at night is another one word, prayer, thanks. And there's no need for piety in that. There's no need for, I mean, it's not, a bit of piety is no harm, I'm not knocking it, you know, but it's very simple. It's very reasonable. And it has got to do with the fact, with a fundamental fact, Emerson, I do not make myself. Now, that's another sentence, a bit like the other one I gave you, which is absolutely true. I do not make myself. That's an absolute truth, completely verifiable, objectively unassailable truth. Something makes me. Something makes me, not made me. I'm not something that was made 68 years ago, whatever number of months, and was wound up like a clockwork toy and pushed out into the world. I'm being made now. You're being made now. We're being generated in this moment. And something does that. And it's not even that I have to fix on a being up there in the sky or anywhere else and say, that's, I'm going to honor this person or this being. But it's that this is a reality that defines my every move. I do not make myself. I am you who make me. That thought, once it informs you, it changes the way you walk in the world. It changes. It makes you an inch and a half taller. It allows you to walk to the horizon with a firmer step than you would otherwise. And we've lost that. You see now and you see what's happened. And particularly, I've noticed this post-pandemic in my own countrymen. It's quite frightening to see the way that their confidence has fallen away from them. Watch them like coming off a plane, like and they're kind of looking around them, you know, not sure what to do, you know, what do I do? And if you look at then another, say the Italians by comparison, like they're striding forward. Maybe not now, I don't know. I haven't seen many recently. (laughs) But this is real. And this is the real meaning of this stuff for me, Emerson. This is the meaning of it. Of course, the other stuff, the ritual and the beautiful music and everything, of course, it's all part of that. And that feeds it. It's powerfully moving and so on. But ultimately, it's the truth of my situation that makes it beautiful. That's what moves me. Wow. I was thinking when you were sharing that, that there's this teaching about the natural man that I don't know about your religious experience, but they talk about it. And the natural man is always assumed to be the dark side, the lustful, greedy, selfish, all those things. And I've been thinking about this because I'm thinking if we're born of the spirit, when I look at around people I know and clients I have, and there's generally a goodness there. It's not darkness. There's a light. And I almost feel like what's happening, this, this whole situation you're talking about is pushing people back beyond that because that's not who we are, to really the light. And I'm with you. My simple brain goes to a, a place that if God can help me get sober and bring me to a place where I'm living a life certainly haven't earned by those kind of standards, right? Total grace. Then that's one. I'm one little sand on the beach of universe. I mean, certainly these fools in Davos and the rest of them, it can all resolve. It. He's greater than all that too. And I mean, that sounds like an extreme, but that's kind of where sometimes you have to go. That's right. That's why prayer is so important, if we can pray. I don't say that easily. It took me many years to understand what prayer was. And prayer is really just plugging into that power. It's a code to plug into that power, because that is the greatest power there is. And when you plugged into that, whatever happens to you will be what is meant to happen. That's my experience. I don't say that as a platitude. It's my experience. I went through an awful lot of stuff some years ago. and this It comes and goes with me, Emerson. I'm not by any means the most fervent kind of religious person or anything like that. I'm not at all a a crow thumper. People think I am because of other issues, which are related but not. And I've seen this all the time, that, that you can observe 
when you surrender to this, whatever we call it, this higher power, God. God is a good word for it, no matter what you think, you know? <laughs> Once you surrender, everything's going to be okay. That's my experience. I wish I could use it more. I wish I could use it more effectively, because sometimes I forget. Sometimes I get angry with God. Sometimes I fight with him. You know, I shout up at him, shake my fist. Stupid. But he doesn't mind. I'm pretty certain he just laughs at me. So this is so important, because ultimately all this, Emerson, regardless of the truth of what's out there, what's in here depends on this for its functioning for its functionality, for its hope, for its sense of connection with other people, for commonality, the empathetic relationship with other people. All of that is informed by this idea. And if our civilization finally lets go of that, then it is gone. It is gone. And that's what I think is actually happening fundamentally, which is what fundamentally I say now at the end of all that, that's the meaning of that phrase, that this is a spiritual war. We are fighting for the spiritual essence of our civilization. We are fighting for the possibility that we will still have that after this is over. Because the people doing this, whatever possession is affecting them or afflicting them, they want to remove this and they want to replace it by linking men to machines, turning them into cyborgs and making them ultimately eminently controllable in every conceivable way. And that's to me, that is hell on earth. No, and to me, I'm with you. That's where I think about those kinds of things. And I think at the end of the day, there are just certain aspects of who we are that you can't replace with a machine. I mean, just what were this conversation, just the things you said, that's what makes us unique. And that's what makes us valuable and precious, I guess. And I think that's what is emerging from all this. I think, you know, you mentioned the ring and the gold and these things. I think there's a point where we're going to need to, I don't know if you know Charles Hugh Smith, he's over in Hawaii, but he talks a lot about the financial situation, but he also connects it to societal and this gap that exists with the 1% and everybody else here, and I imagine all over the world. And Craner, our friend, mutual friend Alex Craner, tweets out a thing yesterday that shows what we need to send, whatever, $40 billion to Ukraine. And then you've got these people that are just drugged out on wandering zombies on the streets of Philadelphia. And that happens all over the place. And at some point, all this stuff out here, it doesn't matter anymore because you get back to the core. And maybe that's what this is happening. This is some kind of a massive awakening, a spiritual awakening if we're going to survive. And um, there's an exciting element to it. I think, like you said, that word surrender is once you get out of expectations and the fear of those expectations not being met, then you're left to just kind of have a peace that whatever comes, comes, where are you going to hang your hat? (laughs) You deal with whatever happens, whatever the fallout is. And that's okay too, because you just invoke the same power again. And one by one, you take those steps and miraculously, something happens that in a million years you couldn't have dreamt of and everything's okay again. This is my experience. I mean, I've come through this some terrible stuff and I found that and managed to achieve the things that I was trying to achieve in a clumsy way. I don't mean in career sense or anything, it's much more fundamental. And in ways that were literally beyond my wildest dreams that I was able to join my pathetic, incompetent actions somehow didn't matter in the sense that all that was required was that I show up, be there, not be away, not be cowardly, not be afraid, just present myself and he would do the rest. You know the thing in AA where they say if you're in a very difficult situation, it's always a very good idea that if you're, if you're say, going to court or something, that if you at the very last minute step backwards before you go in the door and let God in first. I've done that. You see, again, maybe there's nobody there, Emerson. Like there's, there's people out there who go, ho, ho, ho. I say, maybe there's nobody there, but there's somebody here who is changed by that stepping back. And that changes my whole demeanor in that situation because I'm not afraid anymore. 
That's only a tiny little example, because I don't know, Emerson, what is and what isn't in the great scheme of things. All I know is that there is something. As I say, there is nothing. That's an absurdity beyond belief, to think that we could be here in the middle of everything and be thinking of nothingness, being expecting nothingness. It's a nonsense. It's imagination. But I think the big question, and I actually, it's very interesting, Emerson, because I listen to lots of these guys who talk about these questions. People like Jordan Peterson, very interesting in times, but it seems to me that they're looking for theological answers. They're trying to resolve theological conundrums. It's much more simple than that. Because it is possible to reconstruct a culture, I think, in the way that it is possible, or something analogous to the way that it is possible to reconstruct a human being as the way we were reconstructed by this process. Amen. And you know what? I was just thinking as we kind of wind down here now, just my last thought would be you talked about my two favorite sayings in AA are kind of both the same sides of the coin. This too shall pass and don't leave five minutes before the miracle happens. I always like that because, you know, no matter how bad things are, it's always darkest before the dawn. You know, it's all part of the same thing. But that's what I've found is just this hope that if you just, like you said, keep showing up, keep doing the do's, all these simple things you hear in these meetings. I've heard more wisdom in AA meetings or in that big book. I mean, to me, that is inspired. It is inspired. The wording brings me to tears. To tell you the truth, John, I read scripture. You know, I'm not the scriptorian, but I read the Father of Light who presides over us all. You know, these sayings, it's just... It gets you right. It just hits you. It's like it resonates as true. Yeah. Of course, these guys, Bill and Bob, who came up with this program, they went to all great lengths. They immersed themselves in everything, in all the religions of the world, in order to decipher how, how did man function at his best? How did man survive at his best? And I think that's something that, particularly the one about don't leave before the five minutes before the miracle, like I say that in a different way to people in the context we're in now. That it wouldn't be a terrible thing if we gave up the day before the revolution or gave up the day before the cavalry came over the hill and you go home and you're at home and the cavalry is here and you don't know. You don't know the cavalry is here when you should be out on the streets with them celebrating. You're in a depression at home. That would be the greatest tragedy to my mind. So, And again, Emerson, this is so important as well. The one day at a time, such a subtle thing that is again misunderstood by people, I call them muggles, who are not involved in this, that it's not what it sounds like. It's not like clinging on for dear life to sobriety and, oh, will I take another drink? It's not. It's like, all I have is this day. Stop worrying about tomorrow. It's in the Bible too. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I don't have to think about tomorrow today. I can just do the things I need to do today that may need provision for tomorrow or next week. Do them, then move on and live your life today. That's a beautiful idea. It's such a simple idea. And it has worked for me because sometimes you're burdened with all kinds of down-the-road worries that can cripple you in the day and stop you experiencing it, expect, stop you enjoying it, or add a huge additional burden, an unnecessary burden to the worries that do obtain in this particular day. So all of this is amazing wisdom that I think it should be taught in school, Emerson, because it's not, as I said, we're not clockwork toys. We're pushed into the world like we are being generated in this moment, every moment, every moment we're new, every moment we're being by something changed, we are engaging and we're not doing it, all of it. That's the struggle of the human journey, that we are doing it, but we're not doing it. Well, I tell you what, John, <laughs> the great thing about talking to you is you never know where the conversation is going to go, but you always know it's going to be fruitful. I just want to tell you, I appreciate you. I appreciate your writing. It's just a testament that the fact that you and I have met, it's 
I mean, there, if you need proof of a God, <laughs> you know, that's just one more example. So I want to thank you for the time today and coming back on Upthinking Finance. It's great talking to you. I mean, you could have knocked me over there when you said that you had been through the same thing and the 12-step thing. I mean, that was I didn't suspect that. How would you? How would I? Except you get clues, but I didn't. And it's amazing, really, that it's so important that that understanding is out there because everybody needs it, even though they don't know they need it. But almost nobody outside it knows what it is. And because this strange contradiction in AA, where you're supposed to be, it's almost like it's a secret society, you know, don't tell everybody, don't talk to... No, no, I tell everybody. I tell everybody about my experience in AA. I talk about it all the time when I do get an opportunity, and I'm delighted to have it here today with you, Emerson. No, I appreciate it. John, thanks so much for your time. It's great talking to you. Good to see you again. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.